in the current political climate, answers are nice when they're easy. And people like the easy. We're used to Twitter, we're used to Facebook and Instagram. We used to get our answer in 180 characters, and that's it. We'll take that. I don't want to say always, but always, the answer is more complicated than 180 characters. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week, we have an old friend of mine named John Shahar. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Could you give our listeners a quick introduction of who you are, what you're doing right now? Sure. I'm John Shahar. Aiden and I went to Penn State together, and now I'm at Temple Law. I'm in my third year. About to be done. I finish in May of 2021, and then I'll be a lawyer out in the world. Nice, man. Yeah, an exciting time to be a lawyer. There's definitely a lot going on. Uh, we have an election coming up in the near future. You could say that again. We've got a lot of things going on, That's... especially today after Ruth Bader passing away and a lot of that. But we got a lot of things going on in the world and a lot of need for some lawyers, so I'm excited. Definitely. And we're excited to get some of your lawyer expertise and thoughts, opinions in the later half of this episode. We would like to start off and just kind of figure out what brought you into law, what got you interested in politics, kind of your journey into this much needed profession. Yeah, absolutely. So interested in politics specifically, it's actually a kind of a cute story. Uh, when I was seven, 2000 election, so George Bush, Al Gore, pretty hotly contested election, probably September, I went to a rally with my grandfather, grandmother, mom, dad, like, you know, holding signs and, and participating and, and whatnot. And I just, it was a very exciting thing to see, you know, a candidate coming out there and galvanizing people about, you know, different ideas. And even just being a young person, like I didn't really understand, you know, necessarily what the ideas were or, you know, what he stood for or why people were excited, but there was just something about the moment that felt important. And so I came into school and I shared with my second grade teacher that I went to this, you know, rally and it was great. It was so cool. And she was like, you know what? You're going to be our, our weekly news correspondent. Like you're going to come into class once a week and you're going to tell us you know, what's going on with the election. And, you know, I don't know how much of this was she just didn't want to you know, do something for 15 minutes on a Friday or, you know, how much she was like empowering me as a student. But you know, I got to do that. And so I constantly was reading up on the 2000 election as a seven year old. You know, obviously it got very contested and Florida was all kinds of up in question and the hanging chads and the recounts and the election ended up going all the way until January and the Supreme Court had to, you know, call off the recounts and eventually declared George W. Bush the winner. And so kind of as all of this was happening, you know, seven-year-old John was out there just kind of digesting the news as it was coming, you know, really delving into like, what is the presidency? Why is it that people were galvanized? You know, who are these two candidates? What do they stand for? You know, what are the implications of a recount? You know, why does the Supreme Court matter? All of these questions coming at me as a seven-year-old were very interesting. And so then kind of from there on, you know, 
I followed it and George W. Bush ended up winning. So I you know, paid attention to his politics and his policies and what was going on. And my mom's a public school teacher. So when No Child Left Behind came out, I, I felt the real implications of that on people. And I was like, wow, these, these political figures that galvanized folks do things that reverberate through and impact everybody. And yeah, I got to be at this crazy cool rally in September of 2000, but then fast forward to, you know, April of 2003, 2004, and I'm sitting at my dinner table hearing about the real world day-to-day implications of the things that these candidates were talking about. And so that just, you know, kind of entrenched that a little bit further. And I was like, you know, I want to, I want to be that type of figure. That's what I wanted to do. That kind of stayed with me most of my life kind of one of the, you know, initial reasons why I did go to law school. Other reasons, of course, is, you know, to, to be an attorney and to learn a lot of the the things that happen at law school. We were talking about this at one point. It's less about the, the content that you learn at law school. It's really, it retrains your brain on how to think about things and it teaches you a whole new language. And that's another reason kind of why I ended up there. But yeah, between young desire to run for office and a desire to, you know, kind of gain this knowledge and skill set. I ended up in law school and we had five elections since the 2000 election. Two of them rather historic in nature, 2008 with Obama and 2016 with the President Trump. And now here we are, 2020 coming around, you know, two decades later and we're still at a very heated point in time and there's it's it's going to be another really important one and it's it reminds me every single time of kind of the the power of just politics, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, it seems like regardless of what your teacher's intentions were, but that selection of you as a correspondent for your class really did empower you. It really did shape the way that you were going to approach the news, approach your ways of thinking, and ultimately enter law school. So I love that you mentioned that it isn't more about the facts in law school, but more the ways of thinking. Yeah. So I'm curious for how you really navigate the complexities of today's polarized system. I know that's there's definitely a lot in that question, but what maybe strategies that you learned in law school of ways about thinking things or diving through different information, maybe even just the way to think of things. Because I know personally as an accountant, it's sometimes difficult for me to sort, all right, what's true? What am I looking for? A lot of times the first two paragraphs of an article might have a lot of loaded language really trying to stir up emotion, but you really find the facts in the eighth and ninth paragraph. So are there any things that you've learned in law school that you found helpful in navigating polarized or important political time? My answer to that question is probably twofold. First writing assignment in law school, we take a writing class. Lawyers do a lot of reading and a lot of writing. So most of what we do is you know, reading old cases, reading laws, reading a ton, digesting that information down and writing it in you know, succinct methodologies. So my first writing assignment was a you know, research memo. And our professor was like, you know, here's a question that I have. Tell me the law. And that's, you know, an open-ended question. And you have to go in, you go in a little bit with your own preconceived notion of this is what I think the answer should be. And then you approach it with very much the open mind of let's see what is out there. This particular memo was less persuasive, argumentative, so I wasn't taking a side. It was more like, present me with what is, you know, on both sides, and then give an opinion at the end. So right off the bat, you're constantly having to articulate all of the arguments around any particular question. 
And then you just do that over and over and over again in all of your classes and all of your exams for all of your things. You're articulating argument around any given question at any given time. And then you have to then ask sub questions. It's really dissecting a big question down into smaller parts and then doing that same sort of all around argumentative design around it. In the current political climate, answers are nice when they're easy. And people like the easy. We're used to Twitter, we're used to Facebook and Instagram. We used to get our answer in 180 characters and that's it, we'll take that. I don't wanna say always, but always, the answer is more complicated than 180 characters. It requires a real reflection on personal and internal thoughts and just like state of the world in order to you know, form opinions and to create political philosophy and ideology to really think about what the best answer to a question is. I like to think that that's what I learned in law school. I like to think that that's what lawyers do. Whether that's true or not in the reality, who knows? I'm not a practicing lawyer yet. So anything that I say should not be legal advice or any capacity like that. But that's what I, I like to think I've been able to take away from you know my first two years of law school and a little bit of practice in that sense. In many people's life, whether athletes or particular professions, you get early exposure in certain fields that sparks as a catalyst and the seed for your passion. And during our off mic conversations, I could see the overwhelming passion and conviction in your topics and your knowledge and the depth of topics you share with us. So it sounds like to me that yes, the teacher using you as a correspondent definitely helped you to springboard into your current profession in the legal field. However, I think the true catalyst and the genesis of everything where you are now was the rally, right? Any kids who attended the rally may not have the same conviction, the same inspiration that you received, but you took that as a seed and you wanted to do something with it. Question is, like, A, have your parents or family has always been political or how did they perceive your interest in such a potentially polarizing and difficult field, especially given the current political climate? In short, yes, my family has always been political. I always say that my family business is teaching because my mom is a teacher, my grandparents were teachers, my godparents were teachers, my cousin's a teacher, like we have teachers. My grandfather was one of the founding members of the Philadelphia Teachers Union. And so workers' rights and you know labor rights and unionizing has been the core of you know what he did and kind of runs through you know my family's bloodline I guess back when you know teachers would go on strike for you know better working conditions better pay whatever like he was that guy he was definitely political and he definitely brought that into the family and he was the one that brought me to the rally and you know it's definitely one of the major reasons why I have any political leaning in any kind of way and even more specifically, a lot of the just fundamental beliefs that I have about, you know, what this country should be or, you know, what politics should look like stem very much from him. And, you know, I've translated through to my mom and to me and reverberate all kinds throughout my family. So, yeah, no, definitely I have a political family. Almost expanding through politics, obviously politics is an important centerpiece, but what about ways of thinking? Because personally, there's a lot of teachers in my family as well, and I've almost noticed that having information presented in several different ways, but also what you alluded to as skills of law school, looking at the same information in several different ways, and then under a further microscope, do you think having so many teachers and interest in collective knowledge has helped you in your ways of thinking or embracing that 
law school approach? First and foremost, it, it instilled an incredible value of education and of acquiring and digesting and understanding the world that we live in. One of the things that I learned most from my teacher family is less about the acquiring of knowledge and the dealing with facts. And my mom's a sixth grade social studies teacher, you know, it's important, but I, I've taken sixth grade social studies a long time ago. I don't have to worry about that information, but it's more the like the empathetic use of knowledge and the access to knowledge and a continued desire to gain more knowledge for yourself, but also to allow and provide for others to gain knowledge and power and education because like, I don't know, it's important. That's a tough question. Do you mean by that the you said the empathetic use of knowledge, as in using your own skills and abilities to unpack complex subjects and deliver them in a more accessible and meaningful way? Yeah, and one that goes beyond just you and what you think. Like like I said with this you know, memo, like you start and you start at a place of like, here's what I think the answer should be. And here's what I think the law should say. Now let me like really delve in and see like what it does say. And you know, does it reflect my belief? And if it doesn't, why? And like, is it, you know, that maybe my belief needs to be challenged and directed in a certain kind of way, or I need to rethink something in a certain kind of way? Or perhaps the law doesn't reflect a current state of mind and a current belief system. And how much does my belief about what the law should say actually reverberate through people? And that's sort of like that bridge between the politics and the law, because as a functioning society, we need rules. And we, like, we need guardrails, and those are important because they should reflect what we as people believe is most important. Obviously, political systems we've designed over time to be able to implement those laws. And we've come up with democracy where you know everybody gets a vote, majority vote gets to decide, and then we dis- representative democracy, we decide the people who decide the laws. And so being able to look at something, say, here's what I believe it should be, Here's what it says, and if there's a disconnect, why, and figure out why and what to do about it, that's an important piece. Investigating the bridge between where your current belief is and where society's, I guess, collective decision is. Yeah, and being able to under, like, to feel that I am the center of my own world, but I am not the center of the world. So, like, maybe my belief is wrong. Maybe it's right. Like, maybe I, you know, there's something I need to do, and like, I need to you know, step into like an activist kind of role to like make a change or fix something. But like also maybe I'm wrong. One thing I learned real well in law school is that I'm wrong often. Mm-hmm. But the important part of being wrong is to, to learn and to like accept that I'm wrong sometimes and figure out why and, and how to be better from it. And I think the important thing to think about there is that right and wrong can be entirely different for people in different circumstances. Like Right could be one thing for someone living in a certain condition and a completely different story for someone else, which shines a light on the importance of dialogues like this or from studying with law of just seeing where other people are coming from. Because often that's the most important thing is just trying to see how your view could be changed through whatever methodology that might look like. Yeah, or whatever circumstance you're in. Mm -hmm. Because I came to a particular belief system about something because of a rally that I went to when I was seven or an mm-hmm. assignment a teacher gave me in second grade or a dinner table conversation that I had when I was 11. You didn't have those same experiences. Therefore, your belief structure is something different. So in our constitutional law class, right? Gay marriage, big topic, huge thing, became federally legal in 2015. But it didn't happen overnight. 
Obergefell is the case where they legalized gay marriage and, you know, they lit up the White House and the rainbows. Great day for America. But that didn't happen overnight. Like, there was series of events and series of cases and people and lived experiences and shared experiences that happened over decades that had to make that happen. And, like, just sitting in a classroom like that and, like, really taking in how slow and deliberate the law gets made. And, like, we get here on purpose. It feels like an accident because, you know, if you're looking at it from the lens of June of 2015, all of a sudden, here we are. But, you know, a lot of different steps had to be taken along the way. And that, like, linear mindset of, you know, what question comes next? What question comes after? What step comes next is the training that we're getting in, in this legal education where, you know, even think of in the business context, a client comes in and they say, I want to start a business. And you're like, okay, great. Like I can file this form and you have a business on paper, but like my job as a lawyer isn't to get you a business on paper. My job is to like think out every step from here until you pass or you want to sell your company or like whatever, like all the way out there is and ask the questions in between and like figure out how to make it deliberate and purpose and like have it. Same thing in politics. I don't know that we have a lot of that anymore, but it's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. You think, okay, we want to be at a specific place. Take any major issue that's on the table right now, like a Green New Deal. Global warming is a huge issue. Massive. We have to address it. Sure. Do we have to do it all right the fuck now? Maybe. That's up for debate. But like the questioning the steps and making the deliberate approach over time is like the thought process that I appreciate and like and value for my legal education. Definitely. Start steering the ship in a certain direction yeah. rather than doing something all at once. Yeah. People don't like crazy roller coaster rides. Makes them scared. That's actually a really good analogy. So it, to me, it sounds like you as a law student in this unique legal space, you did a lot of navigation between your personal currents and societal currents. Mm-hmm. And it is your job to apply the mythology that you picked up from the training to approach every matter, whether whatever way they may lean towards, in a very constructive and deliberate manner. Yeah. So with that being said, uh, I'll be interested to hear about your own definition of the designated role and the purpose of the lawyer as a vocation and also what the people's interpretation is. I ask that because of your very prevalent influence from teachers' legacy family, right? Because when I view teachers, and I was a teacher myself in inner city school uh, through Teach for America in Philadelphia, and as a teacher, your primary responsibilities, aside from job description, is to instill values and lessons and information into the next generation. But for lawyers, when I think about lawyers as a profession, I think about they could be interpreting the laws, they could be defending the constitution, they could be attending the court, they could be doing array of different things. So I think it would provide some value for everyone if you could interpret or explain uh, the context and what the lawyers do. Sure. The practice of law is very robust. There's a lot of things that lawyers can do. You know, you mentioned defending the constitution or going to court, like... That's even, even just that is like fairly specific in terms of the practice of law. So kind of in a broad sense, there's, you know, litigators, transactional attorneys. Now litigators are much more your your classic battle it out in court, defend the constitution, you know, an employment case, uh, combative. Transactional attorneys are a little bit more deal-making lawyers. So the way I kind of like to look at it is they kind of work in tandem, you know, your transactional lawyers 
try to agree and your litigators try to argue. And they kind of work on two sides of the same coin. And all of that is with respect to, you know, this legal structure and this legal framework that we've built to, to govern our society. Lawyers kind of take on this Night's Watch type situation. I don't know if you've seen Game of Thrones, but, you know, they, they guard the wall. And so lawyers kind of stand at the precipice of our legal framework and guard that framework. It is within the legal profession to, you know, move and push and adjust that wall according to society generally. So when you argue something in court, right, uh, decisions can be precedential, which means that they have a binding effect on all courts and all laws below them. If I, you and I are lawyers and we go and we're battling on opposite sides of the case about whether or not a religious bakery can say no to a gay couple because they don't believe in, you know, gay marriage as an institution. And you're on the side of the gay couple because, you know, they have a fundamental right to marriage. They're allowed to marry whoever, you know, the hell you want. Marriage is an important right for humans. And I'm, you know, on the side of the bakery. Religious freedom is like, number one, First Amendment, freedom of religion. Like, it's the reason why we came here, the Puritans and the Quakers and, you know, all the people. And we sit there and we argue on both sides and we articulate our argument for why the law should say, yes, you have to give them the cake or no, you don't have to give them the cake. We get to decide on that issue and we get to, you know, we guard the wall of the law and the legal order of our society. And we structure our arguments, we argue, and eventually the line gets drawn and then the law, you know, changes or adapts accordingly. And then on the opposite side, the transactional attorneys kind of interpret that and, you know, try to make agreement around what is the consensus of the law. So what is the intended purpose of lawyers and, and kind of the description of a lawyer to answer your question is sort of that guardian of the legal structure that governs our society and society generally. The big word that's coming to mind for me is interpretation. And I think that's remarkably important right now because there is so much information out there right, right now. You know, you can get books, you can get podcasts, you can get tweets, Instagrams, whatever. There's information in abundance, but really instilling the interpretations in like a well-mannered way and like something that's in everyone's best interest, I think is so, so valuable, which makes, I mean, a huge... Uh, well, to push back, definitely. you said to everybody's best interest, and this is where lawyers get a bad rap because at the end, like everybody's best interest is not a lawyer's interest, first and foremost, it's their client's interest. Who's paying them's interest? Who's paying them? Sure, you know, a lot of you know policymakers are lawyers. So you know, your constituency, if you're working for the ACLU, the general goodness, or you know, whoever it is that you are representing, that's whose interest you have in mind. So there are lawyers that you know represent that represented big tobacco when you know in the 80s and 90s when it was coming out that people were dying of lung cancer and tobacco was a horrible, horrible thing and whatever. And there's lawyers on the other side that. It was their job to, you know, stand at the precipice of the legal structure and argue to push the line in a certain direction so that, you know, their client, the person that they were representing, was within the confines of the law. We work at the edges. I hate to keep going back to this, but it's, you know, just on the forefront of my mind. Like Ruth Bader, before she was a justice, she was the head of the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. So her client was women's rights generally. It's a little bit more difficult because you can't like call out women's rights and be like, what do you want me to do in this case? But like, yeah. it was her role to sit there and be like, this is the best progression towards a more equal and just society for women. 
And here's how I go about standing at the forefront and at the, the edges of the legal structure that we have in place in our society right now. And here's how I articulate argument and present cases in a way that can move the line in my favor, in the direction to benefit my client and the people that I'm representing. Definitely. Yeah, so important. I'd like to hear some more of your thoughts around what happened. Um, I guess I know she was one of the first women's Supreme Court justices and had a huge role in women's rights. But outside of that, I don't know a lot of her history. So I was wondering if you could share either things that you've seen her do, how she's impacted your life in or outside of law, and maybe even some implications for what that means like right now, what yeah. her death implies. You've been talking about it a lot. Yeah. Maybe why this is so important. Yeah. So I don't know when your listeners are going to be hearing this, but today just happens. What's today's date? The 19th, September 19th. So she passed maybe 12 hours ago at this point. At 15, whatever. But like it's pretty new. So actually digesting it's a little bit, it's coming mm-hmm. personally, just in terms of like brief history, legacy, like in the 50s, I want to say 1956, she went to Harvard Law, was one of like nine women at Harvard. Like, you know, the stereotypical 50s, like women weren't going to college, let alone were they going to law school. At Harvard? At Harvard. Well, she was yeah. brilliant, so she went to Harvard. Her and her husband both went to Harvard. One of these phenom students, like, she went to school at a time when, you know, women weren't lawyers. You shouldn't do this. This isn't your profession. And like, she, powered through it anyway. Uh, her husband got diagnosed with cancer in, in their time at Harvard. She like went to his classes for him, like was on the Harvard Law Review, like a phenom of an attorney. Graduated from Harvard, worked at Columbia Law School as a professor for a little bit. Her husband was a tax attorney. You're an accountant, you know things about tax attorneys, but I have some things to say about tax attorney <laughs> regardless. But no, she's just highly qualified, highly intelligent lawyer in a world that didn't want women lawyers. It was a boys club, I mean, yeah. So it was a boys club and they didn't want women lawyers. And in 1971, like I said earlier, she became the director of the Women's uh, Rights Project at the ACLU. And basically her client was equality in the eyes of the law for women. And she was good. One of the, the Supreme Court at the time was all men. And she brought cases to the Supreme Court to challenge gender equality using male defendants. Like I said, really, really at the beginning of this, like change can happen. It just kind of has to be palatable. People get afraid by things changing quickly. We don't like change as humans. And I don't know if she knew this or if she was just a great strategist or, you know, what was going through her mind. I wasn't around in 1970, so can't tell you. But she really did challenge some of these gender dynamics within the law and did a really good job for her, her client creating gender equality and equality for, you know, workers and LGBTQ and, you know, minorities and everything. She did that for a while. Then in 1990, I want to say three, but Bill Clinton appointed her in the nineties. She was the second woman on the Supreme court. Sandra Day O'Connor was first. She became known as the great dissenter. Like she often was not in the majority. She held opinions that were pushing the bounds of the law and were progressive at their time. And she was cool with that. I mean, obviously, she probably wished that she could twist an arm and, you know, get another vote to get, you know, some laws changed. But, like, I read an article that, you know, one of the things that she would say was that, you know, her dissents were 
not for right now. Maybe she wouldn't live to see it, but like they would frame the argument and, and create the structure for you know somebody else to pick up the mantle to, and to push the issue and to to really fight for that equality for you know all people. She was definitely a a historical figure, probably one of the most important modern justices, and probably top based on nothing, top five, top ten of all time. And now here we are, 45 days away from an election with the highest court in the land having an opening. And now it's eight instead of nine justices. And the point of courts is to kind of settle that, those disputes that we have. Like as, as we come on opposite sides of a, a specific argument or are at an issue of law that really challenges the legal structures and frameworks that govern our society, it is the court system that generally comes down. And the Supreme Court is the highest one in the land. So when they say, you know, it's X, you know, it's X. Like, that's the rules now. And we're missing one of the people that sits on that court. And now we get to fill another seat. And it's obviously going to be a contentious issue as to, you know, whether the current president should be able to nominate and put somebody into that lifetime appointment because the Supreme Court is was designed to be apolitical, so they gave every justice a lifetime appointment because you don't have to get reelected. You don't have to, you know, appeal to a constituency. You don't have to be loyal to a president. You don't have to... The only thing you have to do is interpret the laws and weigh in with the best, you know, judicial mind that you can. At this particular moment in time, we are at a point where most people have a distrust for Congress and the legislature, but the judiciary, which is, you know, one of the three branches that are built into the Constitution as checks and balances, the judiciary still has the fervent respect of most American people, that they will be relatively impartial in deciding the law. And at this moment in time, the A, the light is sh- shined on the Supreme Court, and B, if this process goes poorly, faith in that deteriorates. I wanted to be a lawyer because being at this precipice and being at the, the, the front of the legal structures of our society is an important place to be because you have to take the, the temperature of you know your people, your client, your, the, the country, whatever it is, you got to take the temperature, figure out where it is, and make the structures around fit the moment that we're in. And if the referee isn't trusted anymore and the court system isn't trusted anymore, the courts have been, don't get me wrong, they fuck up, not regular basis, but they fuck up enough. Plessy versus Ferguson back in the day, separate but equal, like that stood around for 80 years before it came that, you know, Brown versus the board desegregate schools. Like the court isn't perfect, but it's the trust in the system and the faith in the system, the faith in, you know, it's that faith that, that keeps things moving forward, if even just a little bit. Mm-hmm. In a long-term view. Yeah, in a very long-term view. But we live in Instagram, Twitter age, and a long-term view is... What's the news cycle nowadays? Like, 45 minutes? Like, I don't know. It's tough. It's tough world we live in. But What's your specialty going to be? In law? Yeah. I don't really know. I'm working through it at the moment. So, I've realized that the things that I've liked the most in my experiences doing law things are people oriented 
they involve problem solving and strategy. Like I thought I wanted to be at a big law firm and like get this big fancy, you know, corporate job. The reason why Bernie Sanders and AOC get such pushback are because of like the incredible effort and rah-rah that they put on a lot of these very legitimate and probably necessary policies. We live in one of the most conservative countries in the world. And progress happens slow and deliberately. People have to feel good about it. The feelings and the facts sentence. That is perfect. Because the feelings don't give a fuck about facts. People vote with their feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're here, not because Republicans had better ideas. They just made people feel better. From my opinion, they had horrible ideas. Like, we are in an identity of a country that, like, I struggle to look at every morning. But A, my team lost. And so I have to, like, I just, we knew the rules of the game. You had to get 270 electoral votes. And you knew that Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan were going to be important. And you stopped funding them anyway. And you stopped campaigning there anyway. You didn't play the game to the rules. You played the game that you wanted to be, not the game that is. And that's like, fine, make the game one. You want to get rid of the Electoral College? I'm happy to have that conversation. Should, shouldn't, however, fine. Great intellectual debate that we can go through and we can figure out the political strategy to make it happen. But right now, that doesn't fucking matter. Mm -hmm. Because the Electoral College is what you have. So when you're running for office, you run with the Electoral College. You need Pennsylvania. Like I told you guys earlier, Joe Biden wins Pennsylvania, 96% chance of winning. Trump wins Pennsylvania, 75%. That's it. One fucking state. You know you have to be here. Spend your fucking money here. Spend your time here. And do it for four years. Do it for eight years. Do it for 20 years. Get to know these people. Get to know their story. Get to know what they want and what they need in politicians and people. And be that for them. Pennsylvania has been important forever. Forever, yeah. Granted, I was born in 1993. My first election that I remember is 2000. But 2000 to 2020, Pennsylvania, Keystone State. Pennsylvania, electoral swing state, swing state, swing state. Pennsylvania. Anybody who ever thinks ever that they want to be a Democratic candidate ever, or a Republican candidate for that matter, should come to Pennsylvania once a year, make a friend, go to a diner, meet a person, go out to Center fucking County, Mifflin County, Lankanaw County, come out to Montgomery County, Bucks County, see the suburbs, go to Allegheny, come to Philadelphia, meet these people, know these people, because if you meet these people, know these people, you'll know what they want, you'll know the vote that they need, and you'll be able to articulate a conversation and speak to their experience. And listen, we're polarized as fuck. Hot take, probably Civil War era. Ruth Bader Ginsburg death, like, these 45 days have, like, the powder keg capability of being pre-Civil War. If Mitch McConnell and the president try to put somebody into that seat in 45 days and do it successfully, it's going to be a disaster. If they lose the election and try to do it in the lame duck period, it's going to be a disaster. And if they win, and they win the Senate, and they get that seat... There's a, there's a lot of potential for really horrible, horrible things to happen. So I'm not going to discount how polarized we actually are, but I only think that that's 20% of most people's political ideology and philosophy in their life. Because most people, we have the lowest voter turnout rate of any country in the world. Sweden, Switzerland, Germany, 90%. Israel, 75%. UK, like, they're in these 75 plus percent people are coming out to vote in last 2016, hotly contested, 60%. Are you fucking kidding me? Two thirds of the country voted, a third of them didn't. So we're living in a, a country that's supposed to be majority rules, where 
intellectual debate and, you know, you come up with policies and you meet the people and you vote. And that's not what we're in right now. We're in a place where a third of the people vote on one side, a third of people vote on the other side, and a third of them just can't really be bothered because it doesn't matter what happens at the top to them because what matters to them is that they can feed their family and that they can get their health care and that they can send their kids to school and hopes that their generation can make next generation better and it's bleak and it's dark for them, but like they have hope because they have to. People are hopeful creatures. We're crazy optimistic about shit we shouldn't be. It's the reason why we've made great big things because like, I believe that I can make a tower that's 150 stories high, Empire State Building. Like I believe that we can take down the largest empire that's been known in the last thousand years, American Revolution. Like. I believe in 10 years we can send a man to the moon. We can discuss whether or not that really happened because <laughs> conspiracy theories are fun. But, like, people agree on 80% of shit. If you had asked me this question eight years ago, I would have said that people agree on 90% of shit. I think we're probably going to roll that, so 80 But, like, they just want to be comfortable and happy, and they want to know that life won't get worse. It will get slowly better and that their kids will have it better off than they did. Period. The 20% of shit that we disagree with, we keep getting more disagreeable. How do we go about making sure that people are comfortable and that next generations is the topic of conversation? And, you know, prior to 2016, I would have been happy to have an intellectual debate with free market economists and, you know, conservative economists about how capitalism can be a successful economy because lend credence to them. Like, it has been. Adam Smith came in the 1800s and the United States has been a pretty capitalistic society ever since. And we are the best equipped out of poor people in America. It's tough, but like they're not living on $2 a day. A billion people are in the rest of the world. Like we live in one of the best societies that has ever been in humankind. It is far from perfect. And can it be perfect? Doubtful. But like every single day should be a strive towards that. And that's what most people want most of the time. The problem is what perfect looks like is a little bit different for everybody. And if you push a little too hard, people get uncomfortable. And when people get uncomfortable, they do rash things. If you have an economics background, economists like to think that everybody make rational choices and they fucking don't. Feelings don't give a fuck about facts. If somebody feels scared, they're gonna make an irrational decision. They're gonna say, I'm worried about XYZ social issue, so I'm not gonna vote for the most highly qualified human to ever run for president. So I'm going to vote for this guy because he shoots from the hip. He tells how it is. And I can get a beer with him. And he seems like, shake it up. Let's see what's different. And like, here we are. Listen, I would not want to live on a dollar a day. But like, people living on a dollar a day find happiness in things. It's a human instinct to find happiness and to have hope for betterment. Like, it's just human instinct. Yeah. That is at the core of every person. They just want better. A little bit better. Yeah. I don't think that most people are out here thinking that they want to be the next billionaire. But the reason why we don't tax billionaires is because everybody has a little bit of hope in them that they could be the next billionaire. Like, they could have the idea. And so it's like, why take down this, like, aspirational thing that, like, I could aspire to? But that's only in America. In other places, it's, you know, I have my family. I'm happy. I don't need a billionaire. I have a family. I'm happy. The land, I'm happy. But, like, I don't know. Everybody just wants to be a little bit better off than they were. Want to be happy. And everybody has hope for it. That's the 80% we agree on. The 20 other percent just happens to be pretty volatile, especially now. Yeah, I agree, man. There's definitely so much 
kind of wrapped up in this whole event that tragically happened yesterday. And it's going to be really interesting to see how things move forward from there. And one thing that I'd really like to explore with you on the notion that you did mention that there are a lot of problems right now. There are a lot of things going on. But to me, and I'm sure to a lot of us in the room, we obviously value education more than anything. You said both of your parents are teachers. Likewise with mine, I know that education is a huge thing. So I'm really curious for your thoughts around the education system, whether you want to take it as potential problems, but more importantly, potential solutions that you see going forward. To take a step back, both of my parents aren't teachers. My dad was in construction, now does property management real estate. My mom was, and my grandparents are godparents. It's mm-hmm. intergenerational teaching family. I hear you. So I think, like, part of kind of the the conversation from before, like, there are myriad things going on in the world right now. And there are a million and seven ways to address and discuss any of those particular individual issues. To shy away from the fact that any single one of them requires a conversation, at least a little bit, about any other one is, like, hyper-necessary. So, like education system we can have a conversation about like public school private school charter school we can have a conversation about you know busing and race relations we can have a conversation about what we teach in school and the pledge of allegiance and prayer in school like even just that question alone begs a million and seven other questions obviously i come from a teaching family so i place this high emphasis on you know education is this portal to better future like i was saying earlier like Everybody just wants to be a little bit better off and for their kids to be a little bit better off moving forward. And vehicle, in my mind, number one to do that is an education system that's robust, that teaches things from, you know, civics and history to literature and math to financial literacy. Even like I have a business degree from Penn State, like people should know how money works. You should know what taxes are when you graduate and how that works. Like you should know what a mortgage is, but you should also understand that the way the government works and how your vote matters and what issues are out there. And there's a lot of things that we can be doing to really push our society forward through the vehicle of education. The problem is we're not like we have different priorities and, you know, like think about just where we spend our money speaks volumes about our values, right? Like mm-hmm. education, like we spend three times as much on prisons as we do on schools. We just do. If I were to give you a receipt for my night out and it was $300 worth of Moet champagne and a hundred dollars worth of steak, you'd be like, this guy really likes champagne. You get the gist. Like you can look at my receipt and be like, oh, this guy likes a particular thing more than another thing. And so it it becomes a clear reflection of your values that when you look at our receipt that comes every year from you know, appropriations bills or whatever, and you're spending three times more on prisons, like, oh, these people, this society likes putting people in prison more than it likes educating people. Our defense bill is what, 47% of our annual budget? Like this country likes being in war more than it likes social services. And like, fair, we can have the debate about whether or not we should have a robust military and whatnot. But to fail to realize that the debate about you know, military spending or education spending or social services spending necessarily implicates any of those others, we need to do that. And like the whole, the whole problem is, is big and it's complex. And without the nuance of all those pieces, we're missing out on, on really the meat and potatoes of the conversation. And that's where we get into the whole polarized situation because at the end of the day, nobody's talking about the meat and potatoes. We're talking about the Brussels sprouts that people particularly like or don't like. And like everybody wants meat and potatoes, but let's argue about Brussels sprouts is a fucking waste of time.
So true. What do you consider the meat and potatoes right now? I'm biased, so I'm, I'm going to think that education is for first and foremost. Um, and I think that, again, because I'm biased, I think that small business development and access to you know business acumen is first and foremost. Because people want to work and they want a job. And people want their kids to learn and be better off than they were. Those are the two things that I think that everybody wants. I don't think that we need... 17 new F-45 fighter jets every single year, regardless. Granted, I own stock in Boeing, so when the U.S. government buys airplanes, I make a couple dollars. But that's because I had the luxury of getting to go to a business school and learning that you don't bet against the federal government's desire to buy military equipment. Like, you don't. Hundreds of millions of people don't know that. They should know that. That's just, like, information that should be available to people. So, like, right now I'm working at this small business clinic, right? So that's what I'm doing at Temple. And basically what it is, is people from the, the neighborhood come in with their business idea and they get a business consultant who's like, all right, let's make a business plan, a marketing scheme, whatever. And they also get a legal clinic intern, me. And so I'm like, all right, let's draft an operation, uh, operating agreement. Let's get UNLC form done. Let's get trademarks done. Like I do the legal back end of it. And like watching that happen for people. People don't want to do nothing. They want to do something. They want to have purpose. One of the clients is an elderly gentleman starting a restaurant. Like, this is a second career for him. But he wants to, like, build something, have a purpose, and have something to pass down to his kids. That's what everybody wants, across the board. We need to be spending money to give that to people. Philadelphia this year had a problem with asbestos in its schools. Asbestos has been a problem since the 70s. What, we're just, like, dragging our feet? We care about our students and our teachers and our... Okay, how about we pay them? How about we make sure that their schools don't give them cancer? Like, pretty easy. Same coronavirus. Like, our public health system's fucked. Coronavirus, massive virus, affects, what, six and a half million people now, 200,000 dead. Nurses, frontline workers, we love you so much, yet nurses are working fucking 12-hour shifts all night for trash bags of PPE. Like, no. Money Money shows value in this country. Because of the capitalist system that we pick, money shows value, and that's fine. We can argue about the politics of that, but like, I'm of the mind that if you don't properly allocate to reflect your values, you're fucking up. What, all of what you're saying really reminds me of what Ben has alluded to in previous episodes, of that everyone's identity is kind of the piece of a pie, and politics are basically a pie. I think it feels like right now people are looking like at a specific slice of said pies, so, like, in terms of identity, every experience, every perspective, like, kind of shapes that ultimate pie, right? And there's so many different parts, all that are connected, all that matter. But when you look at, like, one specific piece, it becomes hazardous because public health is impacted by education. If we're not making education available for people that want to go into health services or want to go in and learn those skills, our public health system is going to suffer consequently. So. Really, I love that you brought up the interconnectedness, all of it. Like conversations like this shouldn't happen over Twitter, which you talk a lot about meeting people where they are, Mm -hmm. right? And meeting listeners, the country in general, where they are. We're in a place where everything's at the snap of fingers. Everything's very short, simple. Where you don't even have to meet somebody where you are. Because on Twitter, I I can be here in my bedroom in Philadelphia and argue with whoever in wherever at whatever. And I don't have to look them in the face or recognize them as a person it's the you know it's that recognition of humanity that breaks down the divisiveness of that all when you look at another person in the eyes it becomes very apparent very quickly that you are both human 
and that you both have skin and blood and emotions and an experience, you realize that that meat and potatoes, that like human existence that exists mutually between the two of you is there. And then you can have a conversation about the Brussels sprout. And maybe you'll be willing that I don't like Brussels sprouts because they're steamed and I like them roasted. This is a weird mm-hmm. metaphor that I'm going with, but like I'm, I'm, for it. I'm hitting it hard. <laughs> I, I truly believe that as much as you think you disagree with somebody, if you could sit down across the table from them, like there will be 80% agreement just on the sheer existence of humanity. How volatile the extra 20% gets is between people. Like, I don't know. Some people just like don't like to listen and whatever, but. So we have explored and discussed a lot of like a myriad of topics. And because we are writing on the analogy of meat and potato and Brussels sprouts, I'm a pescatarian. So I love Brussels sprouts in all shapes and forms. But for some of the listeners who have the innate curiosity, who have the intention to seek and explore some of the more nuanced, because as we alluded to earlier, we're not saying the nuance is completely dead, but we can almost see 2020 and even earlier a few years ago as post-nuance era. So for some people who will love to learn more about meat and potatoes, but they don't know where to start, and because you carry and you're equipped with such an array of skill sets, and one of the primary skill sets is your ability to explore and navigate information and come up with a constructive and deliberate way to process that information. So from your legal background and your trainings and your vocation, what are some of the skill sets or toolkits or strategies that you can gift our listeners and us with how can we explore and how can we navigate between this overwhelming amount of information era? So first, I think it starts internally and with a true reflection of a desire to actually do that. It's going to take looking at things that you don't necessarily like and that don't make you feel good and that don't enforce your confirmation bias. I think that we need to do a better job as a culture being able to look at things that make us uncomfortable, but I'm not going to be out here telling your listeners that go out and read hateful shit just because you should. Like, don't. That's If it's going to make you upset, don't do it. Like, But recognize it. To really explore what, what's happening out there, you're, you're going to have to read shit and hear shit that's going to make you upset and it's going to make you really think about the things that you think and believe. So first that, and then beyond that, ask questions. Find people, ask questions first. Also, the internet's a horrible, horrible place as it is. It's a wonderful place. It's got opinion articles from every person ever who ever lived because the world we live in, everybody likes to give their opinion now. And news outlets galore Start with a topic that you think you really know a lot about and read a bunch of different news articles and talk to a bunch of different people and try to find people that don't look like you or think like you. And that's tough because we tend to congregate around people that look like us and think like us because it's comfortable. But, you know, back to the first point, like, be, be truthful about your ability to be uncomfortable because, like, I am far from perfect in this matter. Like, I, I'm a straight white male, like, from a middle-income family in a northeast urban area like i have a plethora of privileges and comforts and sometimes i lean on them and i fall right into them and i'll take advantage of them and it's just it's a fact and it's tough to to know that and to think that and to feel that but like like any problem and like any challenge and and like anything worth doing it's first recognizing that there's something there and so if, if you want to if you really want to you know, challenge your ideas about things like first challenge you know yourself to be uncomfortable 
One of the best pieces of advice that I got before going to law school is that you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that wasn't with respect to, you know, this conversation, politics and ideologies and things like that. But it was more in terms of like, you're going to show up in class and you have no fucking clue what's going on. And you're going to do that for about 14 weeks. And then you're going to have a final and hopefully prepare enough that you'll be okay. Law school tends to, to get particular types of people, very type A, go-getter, teacher petty types. Like the whole notion of getting comfortable being uncomfortable was being in that space and realizing that, you know, A, you can't always be at the top of your class and B, you're not going to know the answer and C, most of the time there isn't going to be an answer. The, the famous phrase in law school is it depends. When you ask any question to any professor and it goes, it depends. Of course it depends because back to the nuance piece, like everything is so nuanced. And I guess I'm realizing it now, but one of the things that I think that I have gained the most from this legal education is by getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And maybe that's a product of the pressure cooker that is law school and like I'm I don't want to be a negative Nancy. Maybe that's not something you can get in your worlds if you're not doing this. I like to believe that you can, but I don't know. I, I went to law school. I have this experience. I don't know what that experience looks like. If you can first get comfortable with being uncomfortable, looking at things in a nuanced and complicated way becomes a lot easier because it becomes easier to, to be wrong and to accept that and to not try to dig in your heels, but to try to learn and to be like, all right, like, this is what I thought it was going to be. It doesn't appear like that's correct. Let me learn about this next time. Like my memo back in one L year. This is what I believe the law should say. Per my research, doesn't look like that's right. So my memo will say, here's what the law says on this side, on that side, on the other side. And here's what I think the conclusion should be. That. And then also, it's a lifelong process. The things that I believed and thought and held true in 2000, in 2008, in 2010, and 14, and six, they change, the world changes. We live in a different time. Today versus yesterday. Getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Probably the number one lesson I learned in law school. Probably the number one piece of advice I can give to anybody who's trying to like delve into this nuance and to learn more things and to really you know, push the bounds of their own belief systems and probably what's going to make this country and the world a little bit better if we're just kind of cool with that. I think that speaks to the necessity and the power of radical acceptance, right? So what I mean by that is how can you understand what makes you uncomfortable and how can you know what makes you comfortable if you don't understand and accept who you are? Ability and the need to seek discomfort and being able to be comfortable with uncomfortable, you have to understand your boundaries and your limits. Yeah. And do you know who Dr. Jordan B. Peterson is? No. So he's a very uh, prominent clinical psychologist, professor in uh, Canada. He's controversial uh, figures. He's one of the intellectual dark webs along with Ben Shapiro, Joe Rogan, etc. So one of the things he talks about is critical thinking. He argues that one of the most primary skill sets that's been diminishing is critical thinking. And how he defines critical thinking is this. He says critical thinking is about thinking about what you're thinking. And I think that alludes to what you shared about what what am I thinking? Is that correct? What am I informed about? Is that correct? My preconceived notion, is that correct? And oftentimes, I think, especially for people who like to consider them as hyper-rational or rational logical, they tend to be caught up in their own biases. And of course, that biases is worsened with confirmation and grouping biases. But to truly do what you alluded to, 
being comfortable with uncomfortability, I think you have to first accept what makes you uncomfortable or what makes you comfortable and then think about and dissect your own thought process. And I think that's like the like deliberate and productive way to moving forward in my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think one thing that you mentioned that really comes to mind is like awareness precedes actual change. Like if you're not aware of the things that need to change, it's not going to be able to in a lot of ways. And you kind of gloss through it, but actually speaking to people, I think is a massive thing because you could read textbook after textbook, news article after news article, and it's just all your own thoughts or your own echo chamber in a lot of ways. But to what you alluded to, put looking at someone else in the eye and like finding that common humanity is really like, let's go with the Brussels sprouts analogy, the meat and potatoes of it all. We're all people. We're all like team human at the end of the day, right? Everyone wants to feel purpose, feel loved have friendships like most of the drivers are at least relatively the same on that baseline sure the sides of the meal are going to be different based on like other values but that common humanity i think really brings everything together that would help as a way of looking through this through a different lens i mean also like in a cynical sense of it all that the humanity within us has a quest towards like self-satisfaction and and selfishness and self-promotion like we used to be very small tribal humans, not much, not very long ago, and you know, evolutionary speaking, it kind of dictated one being superior or better to another, and so like, it's fighting even just like the common humanity. It's like we have to fight those same common hum- human instincts within each other. I think another place where tensions arise is where those some people are, are willing to kind of combat their own ids, Freud, I guess, right. Mm-hmm id ego super ego everybody's got an id and if you're willing to kind of combat that id to like be this higher human higher in like a metaphysical sense and not like a hierarchical sense it's hard comfortable being uncomfortable it's uncomfortable to fight off the like sometimes natural urges to do things that satisfy yourself at at potential cost of another person and it's a lifelong journey every single day every single day it's fucking wild that you have to like wake up and be a person every single day of your whole life (laughs) but that's part of it is like the choice of I guess being human or being conscious in the way that you're showing up to things because there's such a tendency to go into autopilot or just like go through the motions it's to what both of you said been critical thinking right thinking about what you're thinking every day how you're going to show up and be that evolved human how you're going to question your own ego daily is all like part of that process it yeah. doesn't stop at any point there's no like finish line by any means but that's like the beautiful thing about it you know always like more to continue moving towards thank you for listening to another episode of discover more We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.